expectations. When you expect something to happen and it doesn't, you feel something. Just in those 20 seconds, the awkwardness that you felt in this room. They were like, Fred, you can't do it for 20. I was like, I might do it for a minute and 20, right? 20, this 20 is long enough. You learn something about yourself. All right, now, if, if I had been out there, I'm going to raise my own hand on this. Who are my critical people? Who are my judges? Anybody? Who, I know who you are. I know, right? We know who you are. And some of you, your hand's not up, but we're not going to call your name out, right? But we know you, these, were some of, these were some of your thoughts. Jesus rose from the dead. You think they could at least get the order of service right, <laughs> right? I've been working to get my coworker to church for months, and then the first time they come, everybody's cues are off. Somebody here, right, this is what you thought. If I was in charge, people would know what to do. Right? All right. Then they're the caring people. We like you, right? You're, you're, you're the, oh, no, this is so embarrassing. I, I feel so sorry for whoever has to go up there. I'm blushing, and it's not even me, right? Who is that anybody else? You're starting to blush because you're feeling the awkwardness, the... Bless their heart, right? I know. Then there's the confusion people. These are the people, they've not been paying attention for the last 10 minutes anyways. And then everything is quiet all of a sudden and nothing's happening. And they're thinking, dear God, the rapture's happened and the pastor's the only one who got taken. <laughs> we find the same theme of expectations, right? in the middle of the Easter narrative. In fact, I would suggest to you that expectations is central to the Easter story. When the sun was setting on Friday and the stone was being rolled in front of the tomb where Jesus' lifeless body lay, I'm telling you, the disciples, they were all saying the same thing. It wasn't supposed to be this way. This isn't what I expected. Listen to John 19, 42. It says, and so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus' body in there. Can we agree that if you're expecting someone to rise from the dead, you're not going to wait for them in a tomb? If you're expecting them to come back to life, you're not going to put them in a tomb while you're waiting for that miracle to happen, but yet that's where they put his body. They didn't expect him to be arrested. They didn't expect him to go to trial. They certainly didn't expect him to die. And now they don't expect him to come back to life. For some of you here tonight, this is your story. You walked into this service and the feeling of life that you're living in right now is for your own circumstances, it wasn't supposed to be this way. You came in here with an emotion of, this is not what I expected. Whatever you're facing, the circumstance that you're dealing with. Now, we know that not every unmet expectation is a crisis. I remember when Vanessa and I first got married and we were talking about, you know, having a family and we're having the conversation that many other young couples have about, you know, how many children do we want to have? And, and, uh, and so uh, she, she shared in that, in that conversation, she said, I've always had a sense that I'm only going to have boys. I just, from, from the time that I was old enough to think about being a mom, I just, I knew we're only going to, I'm only going to have boys. And so when Claire was born, I kid you not, they say, it's a girl. And she said, check again, <laughs> check again. 
We had, we had family over the other week, and, 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 and my brother-in-law was telling me the story about some friends of theirs who had four children. And, and they wanted a big family. And they said, you know what? Instead of us just keep having biological children, let's adopt some. And so they said, we're going to adopt two children from Haiti. So they were going to go from four, right, to six. But during the adoption process, they found out they were pres- pregnant. So, they were, so during the adoption process, they had another baby. And so unexpectedly, they went from four, not just to six, but to seven. During the first year of the adoption, Adoption happens, kids are here, living, getting adjusted. They find out they're pregnant again, not with one, not with two. Triplets! From four to ten children. Now, some of you might say, well, that sounds like a crisis to me. All right, I'll give you that one. Military, I love the stories that some of you have told me over the years about certain circumstances. I know it doesn't always happen this way, but sometimes it does where they let you write down some choices, right? Anybody ever been there? Right? You get to write some choices down, right? Hawaii, Japan, Germany. You get the letter in the mail. You get all the kids in from outside. You can't wait to open it up. And there it is, North Dakota. (laughs) Who lives in North Dakota? Yeah, you do now, right? You might be here and you're still trying to figure out why you're at church on Saturday to begin with. You're like, is this even Christian? Somebody invited you, you thought it was Sunday, and the next thing you know, you're here on a Saturday afternoon. We do have a very strict social media policy on Easter weekend. Do not post anything about Jesus being alive. We don't want to spoil it for the Sunday church people. (laughs) They don't know yet. They don't know. Other times, though, unmet expectations, they can be devastating. They can be devastating. You're at your kitchen table, the kids are still asleep, and your spouse comes in and says, we need to talk. And the next words that come out of their mouth is, I don't think I love you anymore. Or even worse, there's someone else. For some of you, this is your story. It wasn't supposed to be this way. This isn't what I expected. They leave and there you are alone in your kitchen with your coffee and you can feel the wellspring of emotion that's rising up inside of you. You just had a meeting with your doctor, but not about the gender of a baby, but about your diagnosis. And you didn't hear anything that they said after the word cancer. Maybe it was Alzheimer's or lupus or one of the other words that none of us ever want to hear come from our doctor speaking to us. It wasn't supposed to be this way. This isn't what I expected. Maybe for you, there's no food in the pantry and the deck collectors keep calling. And if you don't leave in the next five minutes, you'll be late for your third job. And no matter what you do, you cannot get ahead. It wasn't supposed to be this way. You've given your life to your career and to the company that you work for. You've been faithful and hardworking and not perfect at times, but you've been one of their best employees. But now with cutbacks, you find yourself being the one that's walking to your car with a cardboard box with all your personal effects in it. And you're not sure how you're going to tell your family that you don't have a job. It wasn't supposed to be this way. This isn't what I expected. As I was praying over the, this Easter service for the last week, I had such a sense that there were going to be people here tonight. And this is your story. It's not 2,000 years ago. It's today for you. And what you're experiencing is exactly what the disciples were experiencing. You had a dream. You had an idea of how your life was going to play out. But now the circumstances that you're facing, they're real, and it's not what you had hoped for. It's a moment that you're in, it's a place that you've come to, and it's devastating. 
If that's your situation, then what God has for you is a declaration, and that declaration is one of hope. In John 16, 31 to 33, it says, Jesus asked, do you finally believe? But the time is coming indeed. It is here now when you will be scattered. So we've moved back in time, right? This is during Jesus' last encounter with his disciples. And this is the encouragement that he's giving to them. He says, yeah, you are going to scatter. You're each going to go your own way. And you think you're going to be leaving me alone. But yet I'm not alone because the Father is always with me. And then he says, I've told you this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. It's not the promise that we want to hear Jesus say to us. But take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus was saying to his disciples, hey, I'm going to make you some promises. And one of the promises that I'm going to make to you is that you are going to wake up on certain days. And on those days, you're going to say to yourself, this is not what I expected. It wasn't supposed to be this way. And he's saying to them, you're not just going to experience that once, but all throughout your life, you're going to come to places and seasons, and that's what your day is going to be like. It might not just be your day. It could be your month. It could be your years. And he doesn't promise them that he's going to change their circumstance, does he? But what he does say to them is that whenever you find yourself in that circumstance, in that situation, you will find me in there with you. And that your sense of peace and your sense of hope and your sense of goodness for your future and your tomorrow was never supposed to come from the circumstances outside of you to begin with. It was always supposed to be through who I am inside of you. I love Isaiah 26.3. If you're looking for the very first verse that you're ever going to memorize, this is the one. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you and all whose thoughts are fixed on you. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you and all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Isaiah 26.3, Jesus' declaration over your situation is that your peace comes from who he is inside of you and not the circumstances that surround you. Isaiah 46.10 reads this way, only I can tell you the future. Before it even happens, everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. This is the definition of what it means to be sovereign. It means to be a supreme ruler. It means possessing supreme power. It means having ultimate power. I like this part of it. It means acting independently and without any outside interference. It sounds a lot like Isaiah 46.10, doesn't it? Only I can tell you the future before it happens. Everything, not some things, not most things, not on my good days, but everything I plan will come to pass. I do whatever I wish. His declaration over your situation tonight is that your circumstances are not sovereign. They do not control your tomorrow. I know it feels like it today. And if we could go back in time and be there with the disciples, you know just as well as I do, that's what they felt, that their future was controlled by their present circumstance. But God says he is sovereign over our lives. Our future is not dependent upon what our circumstance is. Our future is connected to who God is. And he is all-powerful. Isaiah 43, 13 says, from eternity to eternity, I am God. It means that there's no time that he's not going to be sovereign. No one, listen to what he says about you. No one can snatch anyone out of my hand. No one can undo 
what I have done. 1 Peter 3, 19 to 22, listen to this. This comes out of the Message Bible. It says, you know, even though God waited patiently all the days that Noah built his ship, only a few were saved then. Eight to be exact, saved from the water by the water. Little play on words here, Paul is, uh, Peter is setting up. The waters of baptism, that's what they do for us, not by washing away dirt from our skin, but by presenting us through Jesus' resurrection before God with a clear conscience. Listen to what it says. Jesus has the last word on everything and everyone. From angels to armies, he's standing right alongside God, and what he says goes You ever been in an argument with someone and they are insistent on getting the last word? I know. That's me, in case you want to know. Anybody else? You're the last word person? I know. Come on. Confessing on Easter is good for you. But lying is not. I'm just saying. We know who you are, right? You, 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 all of us have been in situations where there's just something inside of us. We're like... It doesn't matter what comes out of their mouth. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a response. Right? There's, I'm going to have the, if you're, if you're a parent, you know that you had to parent your children through those seasons of life. And it seems like sometimes they keep coming back to those seasons, doesn't it? Is that, no, 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 you are the authority in the house. And that there's times where even though they want to say something, they're not supposed to say something because you're supposed to be the one that has the last word. God says to you, and he says to me, I don't care what kind of circumstance you find yourself in. I don't care what kind of situation that you've woken up to. No matter what someone has says to you, a diagnosis that you've been given, your situation and your circumstance will never have the final say. It always belongs to God. He is the sovereign creator. He is the one who gives us perfect peace and he will always have the last say and the disciples learned that very thing right in the middle of Easter 2,000 years ago Luke 24 1 through 7 says but very early on Sunday morning the women went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared these are burial spices there's no expectation that Jesus is alive they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance so they went in but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus there. As they stood there puzzled, listen to this, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. And the women were terrified. They bowed with their faces to the ground and then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and crucified and that he would rise again on the third day. He had the last word. He had the final say. And he so too will in your circumstance. The band and the others in the special are making their way back to the platform. What we want you to know tonight is that Jesus is the one who is true and better. And he has the power to make all things new. Jesus is the one who is true and better, and he has the power to make all things new. 
You fill in the blank with your circumstance. You fill in the blank with your situation. Jesus is still true and better and has the power to make all things new. In our humanity, we're so affected and changed by our circumstance, but this is not who Jesus is. Even though he took on humanity and set aside his divinity to bear the weight of the sins of the world, he always still and even now has the final say in your situation. It's interesting, isn't it, that during the Last Supper, Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, you're all going to run. You're all going to run. And you know that many of them in that room are thinking to themselves, well, he might run, but I'm not running. But yet they all did. Because part of our human condition is that when we face circumstances that we didn't expect that are significant, that are devastating, that are life altering that feels like somebody pulled the rug right out from under our feet. Our human condition always wants to do the same thing and that's to run from God when we should be running to him. And as we're going to find, as we continue to look through this Easter story together tonight, the disciples experienced what I would call a change of direction. They found themselves running from him, but then the next thing you know, they're running to him and they just couldn't get there fast enough. And if you're here tonight and you're facing a circumstance and a situation that you weren't expecting, if you came in here tonight with this feeling that life isn't fair and it wasn't supposed to be this way, I'm trusting that you're going to experience a change in direction. That maybe you came here running from him, but you're gonna leave here running to him. Father, I pray for the rest of our time together tonight. And we know that you are at work in people's hearts, even now in this moment. And what we say to you is have your way with us. You have declared some things over us and we declared them back to you. We trust that you are sovereign. We trust that you always have the final say. And we trust that our peace that comes from who you are inside of us and not the circumstances around us. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, amen. If you got your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, I'm going to just read a couple of verses, 19 and 20. If you don't, you can just listen with us. It's in John 20, verses 19 and 20. It says, that Sunday evening, so just to kind of put us in the story, now they know Jesus is alive. And they're gathered together in this place called the Upper Room. Most biblical scholars believe it was in a place where they had the Last Supper. And, and, and there they are in the meeting place. They're trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Since that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. I love the emphasis on the door being locked because it's trying to help us to understand the, the, this experience of suddenly. Is that Jesus didn't use a door. He didn't, he didn't knock. He wasn't on the outside trying to get in. He just came in the room. C can you imagine this emotional roller coaster that the disciples have been on for these last several hours, these last few days? It started with the triumphal entry. 
That's the moment where all of Jerusalem, they were gathered for the Passover feast. So there would have been tens of thousands of people outside this city. And they're all declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. Every one of those disciples, they were convinced this is going to be the moment where Jesus becomes the king of our nation. Prophecies are being fulfilled and then they're they're in the garden. The night is passing and he's arrested. He's on trial. He's brutally murdered. They come to the tomb and it's empty. Now he's alive. Now he's showing up in the room. You know that just as well as I do, they are in this place where they cannot figure out what's going to happen next. As we read through the Easter narrative, you begin to feel there's a burgeoning sense of hope that's beginning to come inside of them. As we kind of left off with part one, this is where you see this. there's a directional shift where they were running from him, and now they're running to him. But as they're running back to God, what we find in this story is that even though incredible things are happening, there are some people that feel like they're on the outside looking in. Thomas, one of the 12, now famous for the saying, doubting Thomas, earns his name in the Easter narrative. It's in John 20, 24 to 28. It says, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told, they told him, hey, we've seen him, right? He was, he was here. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, unless I put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. I love verse 26. It says, eight Days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, we like that word suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you. And he said, Thomas, I don't know what your problem is. He says, Thomas, you were with me for three years. You haven't got it figured out yet? You're out of here. I really just need 10 anyways. Is that what he does? No, he doesn't. He says, hey, Thomas, come here. If you want to put your hand in the wound, here they are. If you want to touch my side, here it is. Listen to what he says. He says, don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And Thomas exclaims, my Lord My God, I love Thomas. I love that Thomas said to those other disciples, you saw him, but I haven't seen him yet. Your experience isn't my experience. I need to have an encounter with him myself. And you know what God is? He's okay with that. He's okay with you and me saying to him, I love stories. I love testimonies. I love everybody else talking about their journey, but their journey is supposed to not be your journey. Their journey is supposed to inspire you to be like Thomas and say, I want that for myself. So many times you come into a service like this and you might be Thomas. 
You, you, you feel like you're on the outside looking in, and maybe that's how you're feeling right now, that as you've been looking around the room from the start of this service, it might feel to you like God's done something for other people that he hasn't done for you. It might feel like that other people have encountered him in a way that you haven't. It might feel like that they know him in a way that you don't. You've got your doubts. You've got questions just like Thomas and those doubts and those questions create this feeling inside of you. You're present in the room, but you feel like you're on the outside looking in. I have some promises that I want to make to you on behalf of the City Life Church tonight on this Easter weekend, and that's that we are not afraid of your doubts. We're not afraid of your questions. I love how the other disciples didn't say to Thomas, Thomas, you, you can't be with us unless you believe like we do. I, I think the implication is they said to Thomas, oh, you, you just keep coming because we know if you keep showing up, Jesus is going to show up for you just like he did to us. City life is a safe place for you to wrestle with your doubts. It's a safe place for you to wrestle with your questions. Even if you would say to me, Fred, I'm not even sure I believe in God. What I would say to you is then we're the church for you. A safe place for you to begin to ask the hard questions. But you've got to be willing to do what Thomas did. You've got to show up with your doubts. You can't use your doubt as an excuse for the reason not to come. Your doubts should be the very thing that motivate you to keep coming into the room. Because the devil, he's active in this world and he's busy in our lives. And what he wants is the feeling that you have of being on the outside looking in. He wants that to become your reality. He wants those doubts to take you to a place where now you don't just feel like you're on the outside looking in, where you are on the outside looking in. And all of a sudden, your doubts begin to win. We want to make you a promise tonight on behalf of the City Life Church, and that's that if you are a person of doubt, he's going to show up in your life just like he showed up for Thomas. God loves to do the suddenly. There's Thomas. Then we have Peter. Somebody say shame. John 13, 34 to 38. Here it is. Moving back in time again. Jesus saying, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. This is an anchor verse for us here at City Life because people are familiar with the golden rule of do unto others as they've done unto you. But that means that the way you love people is only as high as the way that you love yourself. And I've met some people in this world. I don't want to be loved by them the way that they love themselves. So Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to change that up. I'm going to give you a new commandment. Actually, I want you to love people the way that God has loved you, and that's a whole new kind of standard of love. He says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And then Peter asks, Lord, where, where are you going, right? Because Jesus is talking about leaving, and Peter's like, could you, could you just, just for a second, where, where is it that you're going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me, Peter, but you will follow me later. Why can't I come, Lord? He asked, here, here comes. I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus answered, die for me? Peter, I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. He didn't take Peter off to the side and say, Peter, can I just love on you for a minute? Over here. Whisper it in his ear. He said it in front of everybody. And Peter's not just any disciple. He's the disciple. He's the leader of the 12th. 
He's the guy. He's Jesus's right hand, marshalling the troops. Peter is in charge. And in front of everybody, he says, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning when the sun comes up, three times, not just once, not just twice, but three times, you're going to deny that you even know me. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that each one of those moments of Peter's denial, you get the sense that something inside of him was dying. Can you imagine the shame that he felt? He was one of the very first that were called. He was the one that Jesus made the leader. It wasn't too long ago where he's the one that made the declaration. You know, when, when they said, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter's the one who said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. That was Peter. Peter was there. Peter was the, the, the present for, every, for three years. Walking on the water, the water turned to wine, raising people from the dead. Peter was there. And yet here he is. I don't even know him. Can you imagine the shame that he felt? For some of you, what makes you feel like on the outside isn't your doubts, it's your shame. And you're in settings like this, and this is what you're feeling. Fred, if, if you knew my story, you wouldn't want me here. What you're feeling is if you knew the secrets that I've been hiding, you wouldn't want me to be in this church. And what I would say to you is that the City Life Church is not afraid of your past. We're not afraid of your story. And you might say, well, Fred, it's not my past, it's my present. And what I would say is we're not afraid of that either. Shame might cause you to feel like you're on the outside looking in, but what I would say to you tonight is don't let the devil get the upper hand with that feeling because just like with doubt, what he wants to do with your shame is that he wants you to go from feeling like you're on the outside looking in to being on the outside looking in and to be that person where 10 years go by and you've robbed yourself and the love and the community of a church family that's not afraid of your story. Peter found forgiveness, and so can you. I love that Jesus showed up for Thomas, and you know what Jesus did? He showed up for Peter. There's this beautiful story that we're not going to be able to read tonight, but it's Peter's restoration is that he asks Peter three times, do you love me? I wonder why he picked three. Just brought him right back in, and that's what God wants to do for you. We've been in meetings as a leadership over the last couple of weeks because a ministry maybe that you're familiar with here in the Newport News area called Established Footsteps that's run by Marvin and Sharon Thomas. Marvin and Sharon, raise your hands if you know that. Come on, you can clap for that. We support the work that they do and uh, not just what Sharon does here and what Marvin does here, but what Marvin does overseas and in Hades. They're, they're part one of the missions organization that the church is, is behind. And uh, they came to us recently and said, hey, there's a ministry that we do and, and uh, here in, in, this, in this region, and, and we want to know if City Life would be willing to be the hub for that ministry. And we said, well, tell us what that would, would look like and tell us what the ministry is that you're talking about. It's a ministry they have that's called Cherished. And it's, it's a ministry to the strip clubs that are in, in, this, in this region. And they take care packages into the dancers and just loving on those girls because they want them to know that 
there's a better life for you. A lot of those girls are trapped, sometimes literally trapped, but a lot of times it's just emotional entrapment. Sometimes it's spiritual bondage. And we want them to know that the gospel can set them free on a different path and a different life. They can have a different hope for the future. They take gift cards to the bouncers and, and minister to people that are in there. It's an amazing ministry. And they said, would City Life be willing to be a hub for that? And we said, well, tell, t- let's talk about what that would look like. And they said, well, one of the things that has to be is that as people begin to come out of that lifestyle, we need to know that, that it's a church where they're going to be welcomed regardless of their story. And we said, absolutely. Come on. Can we just agree that shame should be the last thing that keeps people from coming to church? And we know it's not always the case. And shame on us if we've ever been a part of that. Shame on us. We're not going to be afraid of people's story, even if it's their present story and their present circumstance. What else does it mean? It means that we're going to recruit ladies to be a part of this ministry. There's an informational meeting that's happening on April 21st, April 28th. April 21st and April 28th, at the end of our service, we're going to have an informational meeting. You have to be at least 21 years old to be able to get into these clubs. You need to be a woman. But if you're married and your husband is concerned about you being a part of something like that, then you come to the informational meeting. Come with your wife so you can learn about what we're doing and how we're going to get behind this ministry. We want to be a church that's saying we're going to help build a workforce that reaches people in these dark places. It said it meant getting behind this ministry financially. And so as a church, we're making a commitment to take on a third of the operational expenses of Cherish this first year. But I know, like me, that we know that that's going to grow to all of it. So the way that you give to missions, and we're going to be announcing next week, as you know, we've been in our Faith Promise campaign talking about missions giving. We're going to announce what those totals are. And because of generosity, that's what's helping us to do things like this. We're going to be a giving church. We're going to be a welcoming church. We're going to be a recruiting church because we are a church that is not afraid. Not afraid of the story of people's lives. Jesus wasn't afraid of Peter's denials. And he set Peter free. Can you imagine the weight that Peter was carrying from those denials? I think he's one of those disciples that was on the outside looking in. We know he was one of the first ones to the tomb. We know he was excited about Jesus' resurrection. But can we just agree? I think there was a part of him that was a little bit afraid. Because now he realized if he's really alive, I got to talk to him about what I did. I love that Jesus didn't come for Peter right away. He didn't come for Peter right away. He came for Thomas in eight days. For, for, for Peter, it wasn't for weeks. God knows when we're ready. He knows when we're ready. But if you're feeling like you're on the outside looking in, you've got to do what Thomas did. You've got to do what Peter did. You've got to keep showing up and trusting that Jesus is going to show up for you. And he knows when your heart is ready to be made right. Invite the band to come up. I've got one more named for you, and her name is Mary. Now, there's lots of Marys in the Easter story. It can get a little bit confusing, but this Mary is Mary Magdalene. She's called Mary Magdalene because she was from the town of Magdala that was there on the shore of Galilee. And the Bible tells us that Mary, when Jesus met her, that he delivered her from seven demons. Can we just say one is a lot, right? One is a lot. Seven. 
Seven demons and Jesus set her free. How much do you think she loved him? John 20, 14 to 18, it says, she turned to leave and saw someone standing there. Mary was one of the people that went to the tomb that morning with the spices with some of the other ladies. They did not expect Jesus to be alive. And now they've seen angels and the, the other disciples have, 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 have run back and the story is getting out and she's there again. And, and she turns around and she sees someone in the garden that she thinks is the gardener. So she turned to leave and she saw someone standing there, but it was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. We're going to be talking a little bit about that next week when we begin to unpack the story of the road to Emmaus. Verse 15 says, dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? For she thought that he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. She still can't quite get her brain to embrace the reality that he's alive. Listen to this. Mary, Jesus said, and in that moment when she heard him say her name, she realized that it was Jesus she said, Rabboni, which in Hebrew means teacher. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, don't cling to me. I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go and find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to him and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And then Mary found the disciples and then told him, right, I have seen the Lord. And then she gave them his message. Why was she crying if she already knew that he was alive? Why did Jesus say to her, don't cling to me? Why does Jesus insist on keep saying the thing to them that he's leaving, which is very well the thing that he knows that's upsetting her? She's crying because she remembers being in the room when we read in John 14, where Jesus says, I must go to prepare a place for you. She's crying because she knows that even though that he is alive, he's not going to stay. She's crying because she knows that even though he's, he's been raised from the dead, he's still choosing to go back to heaven from whence he came. Jesus says to her, don't cling to me because he's not talking about his, his, his glorified state. He's not saying don't touch me as some translations render it. I think what he's saying to her is, Mary, you have got to believe that your future with me in heaven is going to be just as good, if not greater, than the last two years that I've been with you on earth. He's saying, you can't cling to what you had with me. You've got to find hope for what you're going to get from me as this thing plays out. He keeps talking about his return to heaven because he knows there's more and the more is going to be better. Pentecost is coming in just 50 days. The church is going to be birthed. The whole world is going to be turned upside down. They can't even think. All they can think about is that if Jesus is going, it can't be good. And he's saying, oh no, it's going to get better. Mary probably didn't come into ministry with Jesus until after his first year. So she just had about 24 months with him. But can you imagine what those 24 months were like for her? Set free from demon possession, Mary was always there. She's one of the few people that didn't run. One of the few people that didn't run. And now she's heartbroken because she's wrestling with this feeling that maybe now Jesus is leaving her. And Jesus wants her 
to take a stand with her sorrow. He's not saying you can't cry, but he's saying to her, don't let grief, what grief often does, which robs us of our hope for our future. I'm going to make one more promise to you on behalf of the City Life Church. And what I would say to you tonight is that we're not afraid of your sorrow. We're not afraid of your grief. You might say to me, Fred, you don't, you don't understand the kind of loss that I lived through. And, and what I would say to you, I don't, but I know one who does. And it's okay for you to cry. We're not going to say to you what Jesus didn't say to Mary. Stop your crying. No, 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 no. He steps into a moment with kindness and gentleness and, and, and that's what we're going to do with you. You're going to find people here that are going to cry with you. Even if they don't know you, even if they've not been through what you've been through, what you're going to find is a community of people that are willing to cry if you're crying. But you know what you're also going to find here? You're going to find a community of people that begin to speak to you about finding a hope for your future. You're going to find a community of people here that are going to say to you what Jesus said to Mary. Mary, I know there's sorrow today, but I want you to know that there's a future that's worth celebrating. You don't feel it today, but it's coming. And we're going to be a church that gives you vision for a future that's going to want to make you dance again. Stand with me. Father, we know that all over the world, this weekend has been set apart to celebrate your resurrection. We know that all throughout the world, that right here at 311 Selden Road, that, that we're, we're a part of something much bigger, the church throughout the whole world. And so, Father, in this moment, we want to ask for something. Vanessa alluded to it earlier, but I'm reminded of it as just as we were reading our own text tonight, that you said that we would be known to be Christians by our love. So my prayer in this moment for us, for the City Life Church, and for the church of the world, that where there is division, that there would be unity that where we are part, that we would come together. Regardless of our political ideals, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our cultural preferences, God, regardless of our socioeconomic status, we know that one of the jobs that you've given to the church is to help the world find a unity that seems beyond reach. Find us faithful. And may it start here. May it start here. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.